house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. Home to Team Sisu. Skilled crew of deep sea divers, adventurers, documentary filmmakers. Action! Led by internationally renowned oceanographer Captain Steve Sisu. Expert on every aspect of marine life. Swamp leeches, everybody! Check for swamp leeches! Nobody else got hit? I'm the only one? What's the deal? But there remains one form of life about which Captain Sisu knows very little. You're supposed to be my son, right? I want you on Team Sisu. The answer is yes. Well, it's got to be. I'm already a red cap and a speedo. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that can be described with one word, and it starts with a C. Cool! Every week on this Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris File, and I'm here as always with my mysterious deep-sea creature who I'm seeking vengeance against, Joe Reed. Yes, much like that creature, I am um, massive but breathtakingly beautiful, so... And you're, mm. you have spots. And I have spots. Yes, but let's not talk about that because that's uh, I'm seeing a doctor about that next oh, week. Okay. We'll see how that goes. Out, um, Tiger King in <laughs> Tiger Sharks. Or, I would be oh, Jaguar. absolutely. Jaguar. Jaguar Never mind. Sharks. Never mind. <laughs> Didn't work. Didn't work. It's fine. It works. Out Jacksonville Jaguars in Jaguar Sharks. How about yes, that? Yes, thank about we do you. That? Thank you. All right. Are we talking about a Wes Anderson movie? Oh, right Wes after we talked Anderson. about Wes Anderson on our New York Film Festival episode. So we are <laughs> so we really literally uh, on finished theme. Filmi- uh, filming, uh, recording five minutes ago. It's been a minute <laughs> yes. because of various vacations and festivals since we've recorded. So we're hopefully not too rusty today. We are, you know what? Much like Steve Zissou, we are uh, maybe a little weary. But you know what? We're trudging on, and we are also incredibly vain. I don't know. Uh, how else, incredibly vain. How else we can we compare egos. ourselves? We are insufferable. We say uh, homophobic slurs only to each other endearingly. <laughs> I'm just looking, and we can cut this out if you want to. I'm looking at our uh, outline, which uh, we tend to copy our outline for these episodes from previous ones. Oh, do I and... still have some old stuff on there? Yeah, we're saying that this is based on a novel by Philip Roth, which I was trying to think of, like, what would a Wes Anderson movie based on a novel by Philip Roth actually <laughs> Wes Anderson's be? The Human Stain. I guess I didn't touch it because it's uh, written by uh, Wes Anderson and his uh, frequent partner, Noah Baumbach. Indeed, indeed. This is this was after a few movies where he and Owen Wilson shared screenplay credit on both Rushmore and... The Royal Tenenbaums, uh, this is Wes Anderson, and no, with Noah Baumbach. And I feel like you can tell the difference. I always sort of talk about how Noah Baumbach sort of left to his own devices gets a little um, 
sour and misanthropic in a little bit. It's, it's, there's, yeah, there's this a, is a, the mean Wes Anderson. This so is a mean. Not, there's a meanness uh, to it. Yes, not surprising. Which I always Bombeck is one of his partners here. Yeah, I always have thought that uh, Greta Gerwig has been a, an incredibly humanizing influence on Noah Bombeck's movies, and I think Noah tends to when he's working with Wes uh I think the Noah kind of takes over and there's a, there's some uh, there's some harshness and some meanness to this movie which is not to say that I don't like it but it also feels like this is the Wes Anderson movie it's one of the ones that is hardest for me to sort of wrap my arms around we talked a little bit when we were talking about the French Dispatch and New York Film Festival about how these perceptions of Wes Anderson that because he's so sort of visually fanciful that you sort of the expectation for him sometimes is that it's going to be a a feel-good movie, and that's not always the case. And this is definitely one of the movies that I was talking about when I mentioned that. I mean, see, here's the thing. I actually, I like the meanness in this movie, too. Or at least I appreciate it. It's Sure. It, we talked a little bit about this in the New York episode, and I feel like we were trying to, like, pick and choose what we would say when talking about yes. the French Dispatch. Anyway. Um, Wes Anderson has gone through these cycles, right? Where it's not, I it kind of goes in and out of fashion, but it's like, what is the dominating uh, perspective on Wes Anderson by a certain movie? And this one, it felt like he really lost people. People turned on him for like, it, this is his worst reviewed movie. It's his only rotten movie on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. That he's directed. That's surprising. I, I agree. Um, he, this movie lost people, and partly because of the meanness. I think that's just something people didn't like about the movie. But what they specifically didn't like about Wes Anderson is, like, the chewiness of it, the over-design, the, basically, the Wes Anderson vibe, right? I feel like this movie coming on the heels of the Royal Tenenbaums, because if you go, you sort of look at the progression from, let's, uh, Bottle Rocket was the sort of like the early Wes Anderson. I bet you a lot of people who saw Rushmore and West and, and Royal Tenenbaums maybe didn't, hadn't, still hadn't even seen Bottle Rocket. So we can sort of silo that off a little bit, right? Right. But I think from Rushmore to Royal Tenenbaums, while there were definitely similarities, sort of carries over, carryovers, in cast members and, um, you know, tonal moments. I feel like I think visually there's enough that's distinct from Rushmore to the Royal Tenenbaums that what was very sort of formal and, you know, people talk about like the dollhouse uh, Wes Anderson Mm -hmm. aesthetic where like that house, which by the way, uh, up until a few years ago, I lived on the same block as that house in the Royal Tenenbaums. I was always very, very proud of that. Um, but the way that house is sort of designed and very much like it's everything is just so and and that house is sort of depicted very sort of you know intersecting lines you're looking at that house straight on and you move up and you move down and you move side to side but it's always like your your visual appreciation of that house is very uh, is very much like a dollhouse right and so I think moving from Tenenbaums to Life Aquatic, because the visual sensibility There's a stayed, progression there. Right. Stayed very, very similar because the Belafonte is very 
intentionally, I would say, depicted as this sort of cross-section, right? Where mm-hmm. you're looking at it as if you would look at it on a stage, where you can see the, you know, the wood beams in between the thing, and the camera sort of moves from room to room in a way where you very, very much are aware of the fact that you are looking at a set, rather than you are, you're not ever in a real, you know, the sub at any point, right? Well, so, and like the long tracking shots were becoming more and more of a thing for Wes Anderson too. Now I feel like if they're there, you're less aware that they're there. Or that you've become so sort of accustomed to the fact that like this is just what a Wes Anderson movie is. Right. But I think at that stage, because a lot of people, I think, had given the Royal Tenenbaums credit for being so visually distinct and... And there was something new and fresh and exciting about it. And the fact that a lot of that got repeated in The Life Aquatic, I think a lot of the responses were like, oh, this is just sort of now this he's repeating himself. Now he's now this is no longer novel. Now this is just like um, uh, like cold and uh, I'm trying to think of the right word exactly, but like predetermined, I guess. Royal Tenenbaums is there in terms of how the ensemble kind of functions, right? Right. But this kind of pushes it. I still think that like the emotionalism of Royal Tenenbaums is here, but it definitely does push it in a more irrational, um, like there's a little bit more of a dissonance between what is sweet about this movie, which is mostly in the design and like the creature yeah. design and what is kind of nasty about it, which is the characterization yes. specifically of the lead. Um, it's harder to love it on a story level and on a character level. But I I still feel like on an aesthetic level, I think with Royal Tenenbaums, not to like over psychologize critics, but I think with Royal Tenenbaums, you had critics who felt a little odd that like Wes Anderson is operating on a higher level than I am. And I think with Life Aquatic, I think critics felt like they were outsmarting Wes Anderson and sort of kind of punished him for like, I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't feel superior to you. Do you know what I mean? You're the one (laughs) making the movie. I should feel more impressed by you rather than being like, I know your tricks. I figured you out. You know, the way you sort of sneer at a magician where you can see his tricks. Mm -hmm. I think there was a little bit of that reaction to it, if that makes sense. In terms of like the phases, it feels like we're reaching another uh, point where people are willing to, you know, write him off again with the French Dispatch because it's been muted at best in terms of the response to it, I would say. Yes. Yes. Um, mixed negative that it i don't understand the flow of when he is going in and out of fashion i still think french dispatch is going to make some money whatever that means in these times we live in um but like and i'm saying this as someone who doesn't like grand budapest hotel which is the one that i think is the least like human or the least you know has these like prickly things to connect to on an emotional level of all of wes anderson's work not his worst movie by a long stretch but like i feel like when i am not into wes anderson is always you know not in sync with uh the populace i guess 
My thing with the Grand Budapest Hotel is a little bit of my thing with the Life Aquatic, although I do like the Life Aquatic better, is I felt like there was a a cruel streak in Grand Budapest Hotel that sort of kept me at a distance. But I also feel like because that movie was the Oscar breakthrough, that was the one where the Mm -hmm. Oscars were like, oh, not only do we like are we letting Wes Anderson in beyond just like the stray screenplay nomination? And we'll talk about his, you know, successes and and lack of success with the Oscars before Grand Budapest. But because Grand Budapest got so many nominations, didn't it lead all nominees that year? Was it the nomination leader Hmm. or close to it? Possibly. Or close to it. And then it won a bunch. And I was just like that. It was like the X because that was an early year release. Didn't that movie come out in like February or March? March. And it was was expected to do well all year. Right. And it kind of puzzled me because I was like, there was a little bit of like, why this one? Why all of a sudden do we beyond and and doubled with the fact that the one part about it that I really loved, which was Ray Fiennes' performance, was uh-huh. like equally puzzlingly out of the conversation for like he wasn't even like a last minute surprise snub. He was never in the conversation for best actor that year. He didn't year, win which, the comedy like, globe, right? Yeah, but in a way that like sometimes the comedy globe feels like a non-factor to the Oscar conversation. And like right. even when but he was like, winning he the comedy been the globe, expected winner, right? And he didn't. Like that's how good he is in that movie, but he felt it's like crazy. So for a nomination front from what the Oscar conversation with that mo- of that movie was, and it's not even like one of those like Ray Fiennes is doing some stuff where like if you're really paying attention, he's doing some great stuff. Like any toddler could watch that movie and be like, yeah, Ray Fiennes is giving the business the big, in that movie. Like he's the centerpiece of the movie. The, all the focus is on him. It's 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 strange and bizarre. So. And I, who like am, you know, I'm a Tenenbaums loyalist. I love, you know, I'm the one who like will stick up for the Darjeeling Limited. Like I'm that guy. And so I was so like puzzled by the fact that, you know, Budapest was the one. But like whatever. I was happy that he was getting his due anyway. But like I'm not sure what Grand Budapest Hotel does successfully that say the French Dispatch isn't doing successfully like Mm -hmm. i I, i'm not you know i don't know i don't get it i mean it's uh i obviously i haven't seen it yet but it is you know this like storybook uh episodic like truly episodic separated narratives in that movie and that's part of people's hang up from it doesn't seem to stop them from loving other movies that do it but whatever um yeah I guess if we're talking about the flow of Wes Anderson's career, I can kind of understand the huge love for Grand Budapest Hotel because it's like it's probably his like hugest movie in terms of a spectacle. Sure. But like sure. Yeah. after Life Aquatic, like he does Darjeeling Limited, which like is probably at the time of release his most ignored, I would say. Yeah, that's like, why it was kind of a the Life Aquatic. I'm like, surprised that the Life Aquatic is the worst reviewed one because Darjeeling seems to be the most hated one. I mean, I think probably conventional wisdom, and I'm one of these people, puts it at his worst movie. I would actually yeah. maybe say Isle of Dogs is his worst movie. Um, Isle of Dogs was the only movie of his that I was outright bored by. I just did not connect to that movie whatsoever. It's I hated definitely it. my least favorite. Yeah, I did um, not like that movie. But like Life Aquatic happens, people hate it. 
and like they're kind of slapping his wrist for doing his own thing. Yeah. Darjeeling Limited still is that, but in maybe a more minor key way. Goes away for a few years to make Fantastic Mr. Fox, which Fantastic Mr. Fox at the time had these kind of like, I don't want to say whisper campaigns, but like there was reports of the animators like hating Wes Anderson. During the production of it. During the production because like he wanted to make an animated movie in the way that he, you know, stylization wise makes his own movies. And it you know, rubbed people the wrong way while, you know, they're used to a certain type of animation process. And uh, yet, and that yet movie, it's one of his best movies. It's one of his best movies. And I think only the fact that it's an animated movie, it sometimes gets sort of like lifted out of the discussions of his filmography as yeah. sort of like a like a side hustle almost kind of a thing, right? But in and, terms of like characterization, like the emotional like flow of that movie and yep. like the prickle the very Wes Anderson prickliness. It feels like that movie was the last time that he will make anything with any type of like texture of barbarousness, right? Like it sure. feels like it's gone now. Next he makes Moonrise Kingdom, which I think is his best movie. Yeah. Without question. But it is still this like minor key movie. It is released in the summer, gets a screenplay nomination, but like didn't. Re- and I forget what Focus had that year, but like it felt like Focus could have made it its big play and didn't. But then the next movie is Grand Budapest Hotel, which is like you see him backing off from doing these huge production value movies. Mm-hmm. And Grand Budapest Hotel is kind of the return to that. And well, like, and Moonrise Kingdom had sort of flirted with Best Picture a little bit. I feel like if you had like ranked out maybe the top thirteen vote getters, Moonrise would have been in that like eleven through thirteen area. Yeah, right. Maybe, probably. Yeah, but yeah, it felt like I think without the I think Moonrise sort of like walked it up to the doorstep. And then Grand Budapest. And I think that's part of the reason why Grand Budapest was seen as a contender from such an early stage in that year is because I think there was momentum for Moonrise Kingdom. Right. And like it it felt organic, too, in terms of like people actually really love this movie, like the fans of it. And they had, you know, yeah. yeah. time to really cement their opinion about it. Yes. This movie, Life Aquatic, though... We should we should call it by its biblical name, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. That's right. Um, I, I, I get all of the things that people don't like about this movie. There's a lot to roll your eyes over from the production design to the almost like intentionally bad CGI character design to... Well, it like, definitely felt pastiche to something, some sort of, you know... Uh, Mr. Limpet, not quite that animation style, but like, you right. know what I mean? Like something that Wes Anderson had grown Beyond up watching. Beyond the Jacques Cousteau referencing, you know, right. it is right. like, that's actually, <laughs> that's a great um, reference, the one you just pulled, because it is very that. Um, the Incredible Mr. Limpet? Yeah. Yes. Bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and like, Steve Zissou is not a likable character. No. Um, like, I, I get all of that. However, I do think people are unfair to this movie. And also, like, it is financially one of his more successful movies. 
Yeah. Because, yeah, like, made, even uh, some of his other ones that are maybe more liked made less money. Just interesting. I think he was definitely, I think the momentum from the Royal Tenenbaums really helped this one out at the box office. This was a Christmas Day release, which I think is really interesting because it doesn't feel very much like a Christmas Day movie uh, at all. But Royal Tenenbaums had succeeded so well releasing at that same time mm-hmm. that I think they really just sort of like uh, redid the uh, the path for that one. And it is, again, it is not a lovable movie, but I think it is, I was very uh, happy to revisit it. There are certain aspects of it that I find uh, myself really, really taken with. I think it comes to kind of an emotional climax in a way that, like, even seeing it again, I was surprised that it had gotten to that point. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I think just, like, I think for as much as people kind of harped on the aesthetics, I really enjoyed the aesthetics of this movie. I liked the way that the the Belafonte was sort of uh, sketched out and these characters, the you know, the red hats and the and the uniforms and all of that. And I don't know. I, I, I enjoyed it while at the same time being like, yeah, I, I'm not going to wrap my arms around this one like I will with the Royal Tenenbaums, which is interesting because like the Royal Tenenbaums isn't exactly about like the g- nicest people either. You know what I mean? Like there's prickliness mm-hmm. all among those people. And yet I find it, you know, sort of a lot warmer than, uh, than the life aquatic with Steve Zissou. I miss, I miss Wes Anderson movies being kind of sad and melancholy. Like, there is some of that in the better parts of the French Dispatch, not to spoil you, but like that is interesting. That was that was present in not throughout the French Dispatch, but like in moments in that movie that I found myself really, you know, touched by. Is is this also our first movie that we've done? No, I believe it's well, technically, it's our third movie that we've done in uh, the Criterion Collection. After this, the Ice Storm, and obviously Cats. Uh, you you are much more well versed in that Cats, you moron. I that like totally slid under my radar. And uh... well, I I wrote the Criterion essay for Cats. Yes. Well, mm-hmm. as as you should, really. You made such a campaign to do so. So I, yeah. listen, I found so many ways to eloquently say butthole. Did you see that thing recently where Andrew Lloyd Webber was that, talking about how ups- lying ass <laughs> he it is was so great. full of it. He like, okay, granted, when you have a project that's out in the masses and you are doing publicity for it, you're not going to be like, I hate this. But like, no, 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 no. We know what you said when that movie was released. You cannot backtrack now. You need to do like your star, Jennifer Hudson, has done and say that people will eventually stand by that movie. Andrew Lloyd Webber comes at everything. He is a creature of the theater. And so when Andrew Lloyd Webber is going to express that he hated the Cats movie, he's not just going to say that he hated the Cats movie. He's going to say that it was so harmful that he was able to... What was it? What was the... He became a dog person. He got a dog. He, what, he got a dog for the first time, but also An that he... support dog that he demanded that he take onto him. This was actually funny. How they said he couldn't take his uh, dog on a plane. So he said, I've been through emotional trauma because they made a bad movie of my musical. 
of my musical cats. And the funniest thing about that whole interview photo set, all of it to me was that he did all of the photos for it wearing the Phantom of the Opera's fedora. <laughs> it was... Say what you will about the man. I'm glad we have him in the culture. I will just say that. I'm, I'm glad, glad we have him to lie about what he has said in the past. Lie for Italia. Lie for uh, the Jellicles. So, all right. Why don't you uh, give the the details on this movie and then let's, force let's me to get do a this, sixty second? Let's get plot. this plot description on the books, and then we can really talk about yeah. this movie, why we like it, our issues with it. Guys, we are talking about the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, directed by Wes Anderson, written by Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach, starring. Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, Willem Dafoe, Kate Blanchett, Angelica Houston, Jeff Goldblum, Noah Taylor, Michael Gambon, Seo Jorge, uh, the uh, wondrous Bud Court, and uh, <laughs> so good in this. Yeah, it's a great cast. Surprise! I mean, surprise, surprise. Wes Anderson is coming at you with a great cast. With a huge, giant, great cast. Movie premiered uh, in limited release December 10th of 2004 and then went wide that Christmas. Joe, are you ready to give us a 60-second plot description of The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou? I will uh, give it my best, uh, my best effort. You've even oh, put on a red cap... And yes. a Speedo and yes. a scuba suit for the occasion. Naturally, yes. Yes, I have. All right. Uh, then if you are ready, your 60-second plot description of The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou starts now. All right. So Bill Murray plays Steve Zissou, who is a Jacques Cousteau-esque oceanographer and documentarian who has just screened his latest movie to a tepid response, even though this was telling the story about how his beloved uh, compatriot Esteban was eaten by a so-called jaguar shark. And now he wants to go on his next uh, expedition and... uh, capture and kill this shark for revenge he is having trouble finding financing he does in fact also though encounter owen wilson who is playing ned plimpton who is claiming to be his son Uh, he is also offered at at some point offers to finance this expedition uh they go on this they are joined by kate blanchett as a rather skeptical reporter zisu is sort of hot for her but she and ned get together this irks uh, steve there are questions about whether ned is actually his son and who cares because he loves him and then ned dies and it is sad and they see the jaguar shark and it is beautiful and, and they decide time. to let it be because it is wonderful there's a lot Not of other things going on i didn't even mention the pirates okay so this is the thing the actual like substantive plot of the movie is the thing that nobody talks about this really is at the end of the day Wes Anderson's action movie? Yes. There's this whole thing with, like, pirates, and, like, that is basically the functioning plot of the movie. I think part of the movie's problem is that none of that matters. Right. That's Nobody cares. That's not really what the movie is about, but it We're is not occupying here for most of the time. For and it movie... ultimately, it doesn't, it doesn't make any difference in terms of the outcome of the movie either. Like, that's not even how Ned right. dies. You know and, what I mean? Well, and it's... This is like Wes Anderson's longest movie, I think, and it feels really long because it of does. all that pirate stuff we don't care about. Yep. Like it does, yes. Though it is kind of 
fun. Like, I did have a good time with it this time that I'm like, oh, Wes Anderson's making his his take on an action movie or his take right. on, like, an adventure movie. And on know? a sort of, like, 1980s kind of, like, you know, almost like, at, at times I was like, oh, this is like an A-Team episode or something like that, yeah. right? Where they... They're like soldiers of fortune and they have to go and, and, and the tone of it is always, you know, sort of this like whimsically grumpy in a way that I find like that's sort of the tone that, that Murray is bringing to his character where it's just sort of like, you know, he'll be very kind of momentarily taken with the fact that like Bud Court as the Bond stooge sort of like sacrificed himself to go and uh, get kidnapped by the pirates and whatever. And it's, I, I, I find, matching that Wes Anderson tone with the action is is fun is a fun idea that still feels like you know cool idea but also like there's a lot of time to devote to this section of the movie that doesn't really give me much of anything this does feel like the movie where Wes Anderson is trying some things out that yeah. work 85% of the way but that 15% can be really frustrating that it doesn't work but then he does them later and they do work whereas like portions of grand budapest hotel feel like the action movie for wes anderson that does work you know these like chase yes. and pursuit type of things the yeah. like uh not the set des- the set design feels like it works when he does it in fantastic mr fox the like yeah. uh title card thing i think and the tone that he tries to do with those title cards works with like Moonrise Kingdom, you know? Sure. Uh, it feels like this is the one where it's like later in his career, he will revisit the things that don't work and he eventually makes them work in a different type of tone or context. But I do yeah. wish that he like made another, like there there's melancholy things about Moonrise Kingdom that I think work really well. But, like, I want him to make another, like, sad, mean movie like this. It feels right. like this right. is the movie that he finally went to therapy afterwards. <laughs> I will say, for as much as the sort of Steve-Ned relationship feels very, I would say, intentionally stilted at first. And I, I mm-hmm. remember watching it again. I was like, wait, is Owen Wilson bad in this? And then by the end of the movie, I was like, no, 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 that was intentional. That was that was yeah. all. Um, and I think they build this really interesting relationship. And Owen Wilson is funny in his own, like, typically peculiar way, where, like, the part where they're uh, sort of topside on the boat and they're listening to, and Steve is like, oh, listen to, I forget what this brand of whale is, this sort of, like, fictional type of whale. And it's like, it's singing its song. And you hear this the the horn from the ship go, like, honks. And then Ned just goes, I wonder what they're saying. And Steve goes, no, well, that was the sludge tanker. But, uh, and then, like, one more beat and then the whale. I was like, that's the kind of stuff with with Wilson's character where he's like, he's not, Dumb isn't, like, his character trait, but, like, there are portions of him that sort of he allows to be kind of a kind of a dunce in a way that it's very endearing, and I like that. And it, it ends up taking you to a place where by the end of the movie, where, like, he's sort of conspicuous in his absence by that last expedition to go see the shark, that thing where you've got that shot of all of them kind of crowded into this submersible – 
And it's this great sort of tableau of like every character we care about in this movie is sort of wedged into this one. And he's really conspicuous by, you know, he's not there anymore. And Mm -hmm. it's really sad. It's like genuinely sad in a way that like I didn't think I was going to be sad because I didn't think I was that invested in the story. But it turns out I was. Yeah. And then after that, it kind of just like abruptly ends i'm intrigued by like the bookending of the like film festival stuff in this movie because it does feel like wes anderson is maybe not uh saying anything positive about the film community Um, yes yeah you definitely get some jabs especially in there early when he sees the uh the president of the festival or whatever and yeah the thing that this movie does There's so many little things about this movie that feel very much like this is why I love Wes Anderson. And sometimes he can get sort of, I think the fact that what Wes Anderson is great at is a lot of little details sometimes Mm -hmm. gets him that sometimes that's part of people's backlash to him. It's just like, well, you know, is there anything beyond just like this little meticulous like details here or there? He's, you know, he's a kid playing with his, you know, train set, essentially. That's all. That's a criticism you'll hear a lot from him but like all the like the names of you know how like in in royal tenenbaums one of the things the critics actually really liked was that it felt like it was a story taking place out of time and out of space where it was taking place in a new york that like wasn't the actual new york and these you know these Mm -hmm locations were sort of apocryphal and you know the whatever 375th street y or whatever like these kind of things where it's just like that you know none of these things exist and it's just the tweaked enough that you know these don't exist you know what i mean he's not trying to pull a fast one on you or anything well and it also but, kind of fuels the like the way the characters are written and what like the drama is that this is an incredibly insular and isolated family. So when you have this, like you put them in a world that is like just outside of being real, you know, like it makes them seem more up their ass. It like, it is purposeful for the story, you know, and it works in, and it works in this too, because again, like Steve has sort of been operating in his own, you know, world in his own environment for all this long, but all the things about like the names of the the fish, like the jaguar shark, there is no such thing as a jaguar shark, the crayon pony fish, which is the little sort of like colored tiny little seahorse. That's so adorable. Um, Even down the fact that like the, the Arctic night lights instead of the Northern lights or, uh, my favorite one being that Jeff Goldblum has his compound on uh, Porto Patois, which <laughs> made me laugh to the point where I had to like pause the movie. It made me laugh so much. I was just like, that is so perfect. And again, it's like it's this attention to detail that can seem very fussy if you're not into it. But I'm super or like so kind of obvious in what it's revealing to the characters but like honestly i would rather take this where it's like a lot of what it is is like if not stilted but obvious about like how all of this world you know fuels these characters i would rather take it than like grand budapest hotel where it's like these actually feel like real characters they feel like you know uh, people interacting to fuel whatever the drama is or whatever, you know, what whatever is on Wes Anderson's mind that day. Whereas, like, Grand Budapest Hotel, which is, like, 
way more fully integrated. It feels like everything is part of a piece, whereas in, like, Life Aquatic, all of these characters, like, every actor in this movie is basically doing a bit. And they feel very separate. It doesn't feel integrated as Grand Budapest Hotel does. But, like, I can get absorbed in it more. I can get more, like, involved and taken with these characters because they, you know... They feel like recognizable people in some way. And there and there's some really funny stuff. I think everything that Willem Dafoe is doing is sensational. As, <laughs> is really funny. As this very sort of like childishly threatened uh kind of third in command or whatever on this ship where he thinks he's second in command, but like clearly like once you Ned shows up. You put me with the B team, but you're yeah. leading the B team. <laughs> And he's so jealous of Ned and he's such like, he's such a bitch to Ned. And that moment where like, just Ned slaps him and he's like, I thought we, I thought we were cool. I thought we had like, we'd smooth things over. (laughs) It's so great. He's so wonderful. Also, I had forgotten. I, in my memory, I think had made Angelica Houston more of a cameo in this as she was. She's not like one of the major characters, but she's in a lot more movie than I remembered. And she is so glamorous in this movie she is like iconic instagram follow she is a tiktok teen she has like the strike the stripes in her hair she is a legend she is the moment now come on now like she's she's... both upstairs and downstairs cocaine at once (laughs) there there's a moment where you do see uh an old photo that's supposed to be of uh of eleanor when she was married to Jeff Goldblum's character, and it's like a composite of when Goldblum was younger and then Angelica Houston, and you do get those memories, which is like, right, Angelica Houston was like such hot shit at the time, and but she's like, she's got this like blue sort of like uh, streak among the like very sort of like long uh, straight black hair, and she's always smoking in like these very glamorous ways, and she just looks astounding, and it was like, oh right, this comes right after Tenenbaums, where she gives such a great performance as this very um sort of matriarch kind of like she's not glamorous in that movie but she's like so lovable in Tenenbaums and she's like the you know the woman sort of holding that family together but she's this uh, New York-y intellectual sort of like professorial kind of a woman and in this she is just like Greek money who has come to you know uh, the island and she rules she's so great in this movie some of the funniest cutaway shots in this movie are of just like Angelica Houston on a pontoon like I thought of that exact moment I was about to bring that up when she just like gives the like high sign that like (laughs) the mission has succeeded or whatever which reminded me of Fantastic Mr. Fox a little bit but uh, yes yes right Ah, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful shot. I I loved her a lot, almost as much as I feel like I was underwhelmed by Kate Blanchett in this movie. And I, I was going to ask you about Kate Blanchett like because she's definitely doing a bit. I isolated from everything else. I think she's funny, but like she does not quite fit and i feel like there's not a ton of reason for this character to be in the movie other than the fact that you feel like there's an obligation to have a romantic obstacle somewhere in some way but i'm not sure if that's true i don't think it needed it it's also she also somewhat feels like a device to get certain like character beats out of steve zissou 
you know, right. that don't feel fully organic, that feel a little mechanical. As far as the performance, like, she makes me laugh. I think it's funny. Do I think it works? Not always. I've seen more than one person since this movie has come out. Like, I feel like it's a regular thing. People just want it to be Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh, that's interesting. Because it feels like, uh, you know, Margot Tannenbaum adjacent, right? I guess I just or like I'm not... people just perceive it that way, and maybe it's the way that you know Blanchett is styled. I do think her style yeah. is funny. This kind of like very specific sunburn on her face, right, <laughs> is funny to me. It feels like she's going for a reference that I'm maybe not familiar with, so maybe I'm just not like connecting to it in a way. And like I could totally, I would totally allow for that. But as it is, I just it's a miss for me. You know what I mean? It's just like mm-hmm. it 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 eludes me. And as a result, the fact that she's sort of positioned as kind of like the third most important character in this movie, I'm like, well, again, almost like the pirate stuff. I'm just like, there's a lot of time being devoted to this angle of the movie that ultimately is kind of fruitless for me. It does feel like she's going big in this kind of ultimately unimportant character and I don't Mm -hmm. know if like going big it is the thing to do in a Wes Anderson movie even though it seems like it would be right but like even like Ray Fiennes isn't necessarily going big in Grand Budapest it's just a very specific character Um, I don't like to be the person to kind of take you know approach a movie and just be like but what if it was a different movie what you know? <laughs> i hate i hate that too i, I do I, too I mean, like i usually don't even like it when you say it with a performer like i don't think gwyneth would have done uh sure much i don't know she would have had much to work with more than you know blanchett would. but it but is I interesting think... that this is blanchett's oscar year it is interesting that this is Blanchett's Oscar year. <laughs> right, right. And I think that I think that helped kind of people sort of paper over the fact that like maybe she's not super great in this or at least not utilized super well in this because like who cared because by that point she was in the thick of an Oscar conversation for a performance that people were really loving. Mm-hmm. Um but I think I I I bring that up that sort of like what, you know, judging a movie for what it's not not because of uh of the thing about Gwyneth but also because Part of me wants to kind of take the time that's allotted to the pirates and to uh, Blanchett's character in this movie, and maybe you get a little bit more about the team, you know, mm-hmm. the crew here, a little bit more about the Noah Taylor character and uh, and Vikram and the um, the interns, you know what I mean, and the script girl and all this sort of stuff. And part of me feels like, well. Wes wants to keep them at a distance because, like, that's sort of the point he's making. That this is sort of, like, these are the little people sort of scurrying under Zisu. And I do get that. But I also feel like I would have had fun with a movie that, like, gives them all a little bit more to work with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I I agree. I think it solves a lot of the movie's problems. I I mean, all the pirate stuff can just go. yeah. Aside of that's like one of the sneakily, you know, it's in there, but people don't talk about it, forget about it when they criticize Wes Anderson for like cultural tourism. Um, yeah. Nobody remembers the pirates in Life Aquatic and probably exactly. for, you know, good for, for 
Wes Anderson, they don't. <laughs> what did you we think about the about... music? Speaking of cultural stuff, what did you think about the way that the Bowie songs reinterpreted as Portuguese were used in this movie? Because I've heard some people really like it, but I've heard some criticism that it feels not, if not appropriative, like uh, sort of. I think the extraneousness of it, the the uh, like own cutesiness, the fact that it's there for its own sake, probably would contribute to that. I still love it. I mean, I, do I too. This just is, on a sonic level, I like hearing those melodies like wafting their way through a story. There is a certain, um, and I think the way that they're performed and say Jorge, uh, saying it wrong, say Jorge. Yeah. Um, still probably saying it wrong. My apologies. I think the kind of tonal quality that he brings to it really kind of pulls out the like melancholy of this movie in an interesting way, even though like the songs do basically just exist there for their own sake. And, and you sometimes do even get like the actual Bowie, like you get a little bit of life uh-huh. on Mars, the, the actual Bowie version of it. You get a Iggy and the Stooges uh, song at some point, you know what I mean? So it's not all the, the Portuguese sort of reimaginings of it, but when you do get those, it, there is a little bit of like an adrift at sea kind of quality to them. Right. Mm-hmm. That I really appreciate. And when this movie came out, like this was this was hitting a lot of my like high school buttons. This would have been my senior year of high school. Um yeah. whereas like of course was obsessed with Royal Tenenbaums. I was discovering Bowie. And I was obsessed with Harold and Maud. So I was like Bud Court in a movie. Uh-huh. Fuck yeah. Yeah. This movie speaks very specifically to that little type of uh Spoke very specifically to a nerd uh, moment in my life. <laughs> That's fantastic. No, I love that. Um, and I also feel like the the way that Anderson can often be accused of sort of using X, Y, and Z as decorative sort of items, mm-hmm. I think maybe misses the point a little bit of that is not to be like Judy Dench in, in nine to reference her yet again, but um, that is kind of what a director does. You know what I mean? He's like a director uses elements from, you know, arranges them in such a way and sort of, and uh, you know, moves a decorative item here or there, you know, decides to, make this sonic sort of decision here and then move this here. And it's, you know, you're it's, it's puppeteer work, you know? And mm-hmm. ultimately that's why, why I don't think that Anderson is immune from criticism. And I think certain things are more uh, pertinent than others, but I think sometimes when he's, you know, criticized for that kind of like being decorative with, cultural stuff i'm just like he's just sort of decorative with everything you know that's sort of right that's that's how he assembles these things and i mean there's some that are more you know uh, to use the ob- obvious word more problematic than others sure um and i do think for as much as i'm sure we are going to continue to agree to disagree on darjeeling i do think darjeeling limited grapples with that kind of thing more than it is often given credit for well i've only i've only seen it once and it was a long time ago i'll probably i'm gonna rewatch some of the wes anderson's before french dispatch and i'll try to i'll rewatch that one just because i've only seen it once and i'll i'll see where i i fall on 
Yeah. That, I think, is the movie where Angelica Houston is what basically a cameo that's maybe what i was confusing uh, with uh with life aquatic but people like uh i re- is she that's definitely her smallest wes anderson role um kind of well surprising up until that she isn't uh mrs fox and that's meryl like you almost right. wonder if angelica was like i'm not doing that um she is only the narrator in French Dispatch. She doesn't actually show up in French oh, Dispatch. Oh, she at all. narrates it? That's awesome. She's <laughs> sort of the Alec Baldwin in Royal Tenenbaums of French Dispatch. Okay, and now that, nothing has made me excited for the French Dispatch, like hearing this. So it's mostly cool. what you get from the trailer. Like, it's not too much more than that in a Did kind she of a similar way. Of... And I just missed that? Yeah, it's her. Oh, wow. Okay, I'm an idiot. Yeah. Um, can we talk about Bill Murray, though? We're talking about all these performances, and it's like he's the showcase performance yes. in a way that it feels like, you know, he, so, he's literally a title character. And, you know, Wes Anderson, it doesn't feel like, is interested in doing these character studies anymore. His This phase of his career is always fascinating for me, especially in the framework of what we talk about on this podcast, because we are... In the thick of sad Bill Murray era, right? Mm-hmm. Which I was trying to figure out, like, when does this really begin? And it's kind of... so. It's Rushmore. Here's... I think it's a little bit before Rushmore. This is... Well, well, Rushmore is, is the... Yes. I mean, it probably technically begins all the way in the 80s with the razor's edge. But Well, but I, I don't want to go through that far. But I feel like... So there's a little bit in... Um, Ed Wood. We're a little bit where like Burton sort of uses him in a little bit of a sort of like sad faced kind of a way. Not that that hasn't always been a little bit part of Murray's whole thing. But I feel like you look at his 1996 output where it's uh, Kingpin, the Farrelly Brothers Kingpin, Larger Than Life where he co-stars with an elephant, uh, Space Jam, and The Man Who Knew Too Little, which is all it's a lot of silly. It's a lot of silly and not a ton of greatness. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> those, some of those movies are remembered more fondly than others. But like, I think the fact that you move from that stretch of movies into his rather small role in Wild Things, which is like darker. And again, he's sort of like, he's the sad sack who nobody would have expected to be, you know, in on it. And then he ends mm-hmm. up as he's in on it, right? That's the sort of hook of his character in Wild Things. Rushmore then... So Rushmore and Wild Things are the same year. So I think you're right. That Rushmore really does crack the code on here is what was lurking with Bill Murray all the time. Is this like impeccable, sad, beaten down, still incredibly funny, but in this like really low-key way where he's going to like sneak it in without you even realizing that he doesn't need to be Peter Venkman. He doesn't need to be the Groundhog Day guy. He can be funny while also being, like, just wrecked by life, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a huge hit. Like, the the performance is, like, across the board beloved. I forget, I often forget how dominant he was in the Critics Awards season that year. Mm-hmm. Where he won New York, Los Angeles, and National Society. One, all three of those. Nominated for Globe, not for SAG. And I don't think Critics' Choice existed at this point. I 
I don't know if that's necessarily well, true. Well, if they did, it would have been like there was just a winner and a runner-up. Right. Yes, I think that is true. Um, It's really surprising that he missed out on a nomination. Yeah. It's really surprising, especially because... He was the big snub of that morning, if I remember correctly. Well, and the fact that the winner ended up being James Coburn makes it all the more puzzling, because it's not like... that. No shade against James Coburn. And no shade against his performance. It's actually quite a good performance, although mm-hmm. it was in a movie well, uh, that nobody saw. Well, the there thing was about no heat. Affliction was, like, that was a play for Nick Nolte. Nick yes. Nolte was winning the Critics' Prizes. Nick Nolte was, at one point, a frontrunner for that. To the point that, like, he gets fully eclipsed by Roberto Benigni. Yes. Boo hiss. And I, <laughs> it's weird because I do think there was enough heat for Nick Nolte that it it played into James Coburn winning. James Coburn winning makes so much more sense if Nick Nolte also wins Best Actor. It makes yeah. all the sense in the world. It totally takes away the, like, what the fuck of that moment. And you're right. It was Nolte and Ian McKellen who were, like, neck and neck for that Best Actor prize until mm-hmm. Roberto Benigni came out of nowhere and, like, totally— Came out of like, nowhere and launched himself onto seats. Basically. But so I think now you look back at it again, it's not like there was a ton of like, we've got to finally award James Coburn. How have we not given James Coburn an Academy Award by now? There wasn't really that sort of moment. If anything, Ed Harris had the more like, we, you know, career momentum behind his nomination because he had mm-hmm. been nominated for, you know, Apollo 13 and people thought he was going to win that and he didn't. Yeah, he fully eclipsed Ed Harris that year because Ed Harris, I think, wins the Globe, I think, wins SAG. Yeah, yeah. People really thought that Ed Harris was going to was going to do it. And the Truman Show was a much more visible and beloved movie in that award season. Best director and nominee. So, yeah. And so the fact that he gets like Murray gets snubbed there is probably I will also say probably more of an indication that like he we probably should have seen that as a reason why to think he wasn't going to win when Lost in Translation happens. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. So in between, and we could always save more of this for if we ever do Rushmore. Oh, we should do Rushmore at some point. But so even then, in between then, he still goes back to making like some broad comedies. He makes like obviously like Osmosis Jones, although that's not really a Bill Murray movie, but like Justice you know. for Osmosis Jones. <laughs> sure, but then he's making you know he's in the the Ethan Hawke Hamlet, and he's in um, <laughs> Cradle Will Rock. And well, he, right, he plays Polonius in the Ethan Hawke Hamlet. Like, is that not fa- kind of fantastic? But even the, like to his... be or not to be speech, correct me if I'm misremembering, is in a blockbuster, right? I believe that is correct. I really hope the To Thine Own Self Be True speech is in like a Taco Bell. <laughs> a radio it's in the Dean and DeLuca on, uh, yeah, in Midtown. <laughs> yeah. It's in a pottery barn. <laughs> But, like, this is where, like, he makes Charlie's Angels and famously, like, does not get along he with anybody. He's famously a full-on bastard. And his and performance on screen really reflects the performance of a man who is not having a good time. Like, it is a, that's a real, in a movie that is otherwise very fun, and you can tell who is having fun making that movie. Sam Rockwell uh, and, us, of course, the three women uh, at the center of it are all having a really fantastic time. I Ends think. up not being in the sequel. Right. Gets recast as, with uh, Bernie Mac, you know, in, in the sequel. But anyway. Oh, rest in peace, Bernie. We're Mac. definitely into, like, Sad Murray era. So along comes the Royal Tenenbaums, where he's more of a side character 
But again, that sort of like he's really proving himself to be a great match for Wes Anderson's sensibilities. He's uh, Gwyneth one Paltrow's, of the funniest people in that movie too. What, people don't yeah, talk what, about him in that movie. He's very funny. All this sort of stuff with the like the behavioral psychology stuff that he's doing with the kid. And the way he reacts to all of uh, Margot's sort of uh, cuckoldings. And uh, it's really, really fantastic. And then uh, his next movie, after the Royal Tenenbaums, ends up being Lost in Translation, which is a sensation for him. And for a lot of people, it was a revelation. Although a lot of people already knew that this was what he was capable of. And it really felt for a second like he was going to win best actor and i think he thought so because his reaction to not winning was uh he was not a happy camper when sean penn beat him out for that oscar and i after that we've talked about this a little bit when we talk about jim jarmusch's uh, broken flowers after he loses the oscar for lost in translation immediately talk turns to like well what's he gonna win it for because clearly they owe him now he was and he he was that close he came so close it would be a shame to not, you know, we, every, I think everybody wanted that moment. They wanted the moment of the legendary funny man has now won for a, you know, largely dramatic role. <coughs> and so then all of a sudden, the next several movies, if he's in anything close to a lead role, there's going to be some buzz to it, right? So like Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou is the next movie that comes along. And there were people who were like, front runner he is the front runner for best actor in 2004 because we owe it to him and mm-hmm. wes anderson had gotten a screenplay nomination for tenenbaum so he's got some momentum this is going to be a breakthrough for wes anderson this is going to be bill murray's oscar movie it's just going to happen and it very much didn't for very much did not i mean uh... I forget where I I mean, like, it was probably, like, Gold Derby or something at the time, where it was, like, people, once they saw the movie, immediately called him out because this character is so unlikable. Yeah. It's, it's, it is very strange to me that he wasn't Globe nominated for this. We've talked about this Globe comedy lineup before. But, like, because, purely just because of that momentum, I think it does speak to how unliked this movie was. And, of course, like, I, the movie conceivably would have been ready right it's not like one of those situations where the globes didn't see it um considering when they normally announce and when the when the limited release started for this movie but the nominee lineup we've talked about this before jamie fox wins for ray obviously jim carrey for eternal sunshine uh paul giamatti for sideways and then the one-two punch of kevin klein for to lovely and kevin spacey for beyond the sea so this category, I'll come at it from two ways. One of the ways is Kevin Spacey's embarrassingly terrible in Beyond the Sea, and not only because he was insanely miscast as Bobby Darren, but also it's just a cringy performance across the board. And it was this this was the case before we all decided that we were going to retroactively pretend we all always hated Kevin Spacey, and. This was cringy then. This was cringy before, uh, you know, everything else came to light about Kevin Spacey. On the other side of it, Jamie Foxx winning for Ray for musical or comedy is a farce. I know there's a lot of music in Ray. Ray is not a musical. 
I know that the Golden Globes have fudged this line in many it's instances. It's way less egregious than a lot of other past ones, though. I think that that may be true, but I, I nonetheless, Ray is all Ray is in that basket of movies where I just feel like it is. It's disingenuous to call that movie a musical. Spiritually, it is not a musical. There is not enough music in it to be a musical. It is a drama. It is a dramatic film with songs. And I think a lot of a lot of that movie that that award seasons sort of disappointments are alleviated a little bit if just like just let Paul Giamatti <coughs> or Jim Carrey win best comedy they were giving comedic performances do you know what i mean like that's i'm not usually a hardliner about that kind of a thing i mean like, that's for... definitely some campaign trickery because at that point sure. like the aviator was the front runner for best picture so they were the ray campaign was probably trying to get out of the way of but, the aviator. but ultimately they didn't need to it's not like Jamie no Fox they absolutely didn't need Leonardo to he DiCaprio. would have absolutely beaten leo just like he would have for the oscar but there like, was this no is beating the way him that year yeah no i agree i agree with you and but not just to like say it, that bill murray would have won had he been nominated i just think it's very surprising given yes. the type of narrative that he had from the year before that he didn't but i also feel like because one of the things that people didn't like about the life aquatic was that it was more it was nastier and more of a bummer than they really probably like, closer the to lack the of, real bill murray <laughs> well but right, but also the fact that like the lack of comedy in it, sufficient comedy in it, was one of the reasons why people didn't like it. I think that probably played into it too. Do you know? Right. The famously so. hilarious De Lovely. <laughs> no, but that's but again, but at least De Lovely, De Lovely has a much easier claim on being a musical than you know something like Ray does, right? I don't know. There's probably just as many musical sequences. You forget Ray has a lot of music in it. I'm standing by this. I think Delovely is stand by it. I, I, I don't. I don't disagree. It's not like we're arguing uh, whether or not My Week with Marilyn is a musical or not. Okay, but was My Week with Marilyn considered a musical, or was My Week with Marilyn considered a comedy? I think they were very unwilling. It's insane to, either way. Uh, it's insane either way. But yes. Um, yeah. yeah. I also just want to sort of like dip into this era of Wes Anderson because we, you know, we got into this before about how we really kind of couldn't get arrested by the Academy outside of the screenplay category up until... Never had an actor nominated. Right. That's the crazy thing. So like, and Rushmore, again, Murray wins Los Angeles Film Critics, New York Film Critics, National Society of Film Critics, wins the Independent Spirit Award and is nominated for a Golden Globe. No Oscar nominations. Royal Tenenbaums uh, is nominated for screenplay at the Oscars. It wins the Golden Globe for Gene Hackman. He won the National Society of Film Critics for Best Actor. And then the screenplay was shortlisted by BAFTA, Writers Guild, New York Critics, and then the Critics' Choice gave uh, that movie an ensemble nomination. Life Aquatic's only major nomination is an ensemble nomination from the Critics' Choice. And then Darjeeling, uh, its only thing, I jotted this down, it won Best Comedy Film at the Movies for Grown Ups Awards. So, <laughs> um, good for That's that. That's weird, considering the only person in it over 50 
is Angelica Houston, and Wes Anderson was definitely not 50 when that movie was made. Well, Bill Murray is running for the train at the beginning of that movie and doesn't make it. But yes, you're, uh, oh, I forgot you're, that. You're correct. So, but yeah, it is. It's it's an irksome trend with Wes Anderson's films that no, at no point does he get an actor nominated, even when, as we said, he gets a bajillion nominations for Grand Budapest Hotel. He can't get his lead actor nominated. It's it is telling in the way that like this is how. Academy members see his movies, which are aesthetic uh, objects rather than actorly, you know, uh, mm-hmm. opportunities. But I also feel like acting and screenplay tend to go hand in hand, right? So if he's getting a screenplay nomination for Royal Tenenbaums, it's it's puzzling that, you know, the acting in that wouldn't get recognized as well. What I will observe about this, with the caveat that there are some, like, egregious examples that are not the case, like Ray Fiennes, Gene Hackman, um, uh, Bill Murray and Rushmore, I think in a lot of his movies, all these actors are on a level playing field, where it's like, it's not favoring any particular performance. It's hard to pick out one person from Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, true. it's hard to, I mean, well, I mean, the, that's an animated movie. I'm not going to say Fantastic Mr. Fox. But, like, in that way, that yes. it's like everybody is kind of given equal footing. Yeah, I think that's going to be part of the reason why it's going to be tough for Jeffrey Wright to accumulate awards momentum for French Dispatch. Even though I feel like the kind of uh, anthology nature of that movie does I mean, might help him out a little bit because he is he is the lead of his little section of the movie right so maybe that does help and his is the last of those sections and it's the most impactful so i'm still holding a little bit of a torch for him in that movie because i do think he's wonderful uh do we want to do a little ranking then i think we should i think we owe it to the great uh, performances in wes anderson movies i love this what are we ranking so we did, we were sort of debating whether we wanted to each sort of give our Wes Anderson movie rankings or to rank our top five performances. And again, because the performances in his movies so, so rarely get the shine that they deserve, we're going to each deliver our top five performances in Wes Anderson movies. Me being me, I have some uh, honorable mentions as well. I definitely have honorable mentions too, because like we just illustrated there is a lot of level playing field here and it's like you know if it, it, it would be very different if we were maybe ranking the ensembles as a whole of uh west Anderson yeah. movies but uh what are some ones that you would have thrown out i almost uh threw someone from fantastic mr fox in there if i'm gonna pick one honestly i think i would pick jason schwartzman who for an actor i don't particularly care for i think is really funny in that movie in particular and like it it's so to me and uh my taste for him as an actor i feel like it's so funny that he is basically playing this petulant little boy yes Um, he's really great in that he probably should be my selection for mr fox i went with somebody else obviously my uh my side 
uh, pick from Fantastic Mr. Fox is Isabelle Huppert as Mrs. Fox in the French version of Fantastic Mr. Fox. <laughs> you are nothing if not a, uh, a I don't she know. She should be in a Wes Anderson movie. She would be great. I would love that. For as much as she, she killed it in uh, I Heart Huckabees, and I know that's not the same thing, but like it's a big ensemble and for a you know very particular director. So you could see her in any of the roles that like Francis has played. So my runners up, I put Jeffrey Wright in French Dispatch and runner up because he, that movie has not uh, opened yet and not everybody's gotten to see it. But I think ask me in a year and he'll definitely be in my top five uh, for that. I had on a short list, uh, Edward Norton in Moonrise Kingdom. He's really, really funny in that in a way. All of the that... kids in Moonrise Kingdom getting like a single honorable mention because the kids yeah. are so funny. Not even just the two leads. Right. The shout out Lucas Hedges. Um, I think actually Adrian Brody is quite good in Darjeeling Limited. I know he is not uh, everybody's fave. He's not always my fave, but I think he's uh, quite good in that movie. I think any number of the people in the Royal Tenenbaums, uh, including but not limited to Owen Wilson, uh, Ben Stiller, it's it's a lot of Angelica Houston. There's a I, lot of good. I had a hard time uh, with uh, Royal Tenenbaums because like everybody has a moment that they get to be great. I think the mm-hmm. one that's probably not on my list that would be most likely is Angelica Houston. Angelica Houston. Really, I, I think really she's wonderful. All right. So who is your? Give me your list from five to one. Uh, one other name I would shout out on a um, uh, runners up that is. Not on my list. I would also say um, uh, Tony Revolori in Grand Budapest. That's a great choice. That's a really good choice. Uh, well, well picked. Such a fun performance. Uh, okay, so my number five, uh, I went with not uh, one of the most praised performances from Rushmore, but I think the very best. Um, I said Olivia Williams in Rushmore. That's a great pick. She's good. She's got a tricky role in that, too. Where she, has she has a really to... tricky role. I think she gives that movie its emotional undercurrent and also, like, it's kind of more prickly textures to it, too, um, on top of Bill Murray's, to be honest. Um, yeah, I think she's great, and I don't think she gets talked about in that movie. I'd love to see her in another Wes Anderson movie. Yeah. Who's your number five? Oh, are we going to do one-to-one? That's sort of how we're going to... All right. Uh, sure, yeah. Why not? I feel so, like we're going to be talking about... Though there's at least going to be a performance or two that we're going to be... I think, I think we're going to overlap sure. quite a bit, actually. My fifth I'm is totally. also from... Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, is also from Rushmore. Mine is Jason Schwartzman from Rushmore. I think that is a... That is a sort of instantly recognizable character that uh, that is cranked up to sort of a Wes Anderson degree. This overly precocious, uh, irritating uh, sort of uh, apple, pol- apple polishing in a really kind of particular way, um, precocious monster in a way that, like, I really love. I, I think that is for, for Schwartzman to put his stamp on that character to the point where like it's hard to separate Max Fisher from any other Schwartzman performance. And mm-hmm. I think he's so, so, so effective with creating that character. I love it. So my number four is a very understated performance. So I like debated 
not putting this in there and putting it in an honorable mention, but I do actually feel really strongly about this. This performance, it's one of those things where a director knows exactly how to use an actor in a way that they haven't been used before that is really smart about that performer's screen persona. And again, it's very understated, but I think it's a perfect performance. And it's Bruce Willis in Moonrise Kingdom. So I think you, he's and, the... you and the Independent Spirit Award voters are on the same page here. <laughs> Shockingly. I mean, everybody is wonderful in that movie. But Bruce Willis, I think, I don't know. It's just, it made me feel for a minute like he was going to, you know, start doing more interesting, understated work. And I was proven completely wrong by his choices of moving towards, you know, almost entirely direct to uh, DVD bargain bin movies. Um, I think he's just really lovely. I think it's, you know, it is a quintessential Bruce Willis performance. Um, in a way that's unlike any other quintessential Bruce Willis performance. Um, and just his presence among that ensemble, yeah. uh, I find very sweet. Um, I have owed that movie a rewatch for a while. I definitely want to get to it probably in, in French Dispatch season when that ends up opening. Because you wouldn't be wrong to pick I anybody f- from Moonrise Kingdom in a top five. Even like yeah. I debated Bob Balaban. Um <laughs> He's so great in that. He's so wonderful. I mean, there's so many reasons why Moonrise Kingdom is my favorite Wes Anderson movie. But, like, I think the textures that Bruce Willis is allowed to play um, speak to what that movie is and what that movie is after um, in a way that I really enjoy. Very nice. Who's Um, number four? So this is tough. I'm already at like, how am I? All right. I think I'm going to stick actually <laughs> with Rushmore for my number four and have Murray from Rushmore fall in here. Not because he's not worthy of being number one on any list, just because I feel like my top three, I have such stronger feelings for, but like, I mean, what, you know, what more can we say? We've talked uh, we've talked about it. It is a, a complete, reinvention of his screen persona despite the fact that like it's drawing upon things that we already knew were there and it is the perfect counterpoint to what schwartzman is doing as max and it is it it is low-key while still being so dynamic in a way that like it's really hard to do it's really hard to be like that captivating while exteriorly being like muted in that way. Mm-hmm. And it's, I don't know. It's just great. It's great stuff. I love it. He's amazing. He should have yeah. been nominated. Yes. He it's should've. not in my top five. All right. Even though maybe I should have put him there. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> my number three, a performance I know we both like, I would love to see it show up in your ranking. Uh, it's Willem Dafoe in The Life Aquatic. Well done. He's not in my top five, but I'm glad that you put him in yours. He is very much, I think, the best performance of the movie. I think he captures the tone and theme of the movie the best, that it is all basically about childish ego and machismo, but also incredibly funny in the way that, you know, 
Eh. Willem Dafoe is so prolific that it's like you can't really say he doesn't get to do this that often, but like he really doesn't get to be funny in the way that he is funny in this all that often. Like the closest analog to uh, this performance that I can think of is The Lighthouse, right? Which is basically (laughs) the same character. Um, uh, He's just wonderful. He's one of our finest comic actors, Willem Dafoe. He's very funny. He's so lovable in this movie. Also, like, we haven't talked about the iconic Team Zissou costuming yet. It looks funnier on no one more so than Willem Dafoe. No, it's true. And it's a it great also costume. is like an iconic fit on him. It's like it's funny, but you also he makes you want to go out and buy a Team Zissou outfit. Chris, you've got a good three weeks until Halloween. I, it is not too late for this to, for a Team Zissou to be your Halloween. I was costume. wearing my Team Zissou hat when I watched the movie last. I'm night, saying like you're more than halfway. Nerd. You're you're halfway there. I believe in you. I feel like you listen can these off. thighs, honey. I've been I've been working on my legs. I would look good in a Team <laughs> Zissou outfit. Let me just say it. I'm, I'm, I'll be the I'm one demanding to say it. it. I'm demanding it. All right, my number, number three, three, which uh, you know, pick me on a on a different day, and this could be my number one. I love this performance so much. It's uh, Gwyneth Paltrow in the Royal Tenenbaums. Almost Mar- my five. Margot Tenenbaum is absolutely my favorite character from a Wes Anderson movie. I just, I adore her. I adore the the frowny expression on her face. I adore the way she takes a bath and is so dedicated to not moving that she has figured out a way to uh, control the television and the doorknob uh, with her foot. And it's every line reading is so good. Every <laughs> the moment where Royal says that she doesn't have a middle name and she just goes Helen like that. It just kills me. And she's still able to sell what I think is the weakest part of that film, which is the the Margot and Richie sort of incestuous uh, thing there that like is the closest that movie comes to sort of hopping the tracks and, and going awry. But I think that she and Luke Wilson are really able to, to keep that on the right side of things for the most part. And, She's insanely funny. And I think if the country, and by the country, I mean movie dorks, the weren't, weren't so dedicated to hating her after Shakespeare in Love for inexplicable reasons, she could have gotten a supporting actress nomination and it would have been hugely deserved because she rules in that movie. She's so funny. Okay, you've made me feel bad that she's not on my top five. You are right (laughs) about everything that you have said. She's great. She's so great. All right. Who is your number two? My number two definitely should have been nominated. We've talked about it already. It's Ray Fiennes in the Grand Budapest Hotel. There's anything that makes me return to that movie that I don't like. It's him. He is sensational. Like, the type of iconic comedic performance that just throws away every funny line. And like, I I feel like that movie is like fueled by his performance. Like, I think it's maybe the one performance in all of Wes Anderson movies that feel like that performance is at the wheel of that automobile Mm -hmm. rather Mm -hmm. than Wes Anderson, uh, in certain moments of the film, uh, 
yeah, I don't know why it hasn't completely, um, it, it, I don't want to say it's like one of the most underrated performances of the modern era, but like, I don't know why we aren't, uh, in an era of justice for Ray Fines. It feels like the type of performance that should be, you know, fueling him to an Oscar win for a less interesting performance, like happens <laughs> with so many people. Yeah. Um, yeah, as as meh as I am about the movie, I am incredibly effusive about him in it. Well, Ray Fiennes is my number two as well. Everything you I said figured. is absolutely correct. I totally and I think we're going to have the same number one. I mean, probably if neither one of us has mentioned it. Yeah, but um, everything you said about Ray Fiennes is correct. I sometimes marvel at the fact that the first time I and I think probably most people became aware of him was his Oscar nominated performance as a ruthless Nazi in Schindler's List. And the fact that that's how it's like where it started, where it's go, <laughs> where it's going. It's just like it started with ruthless Nazi in Schindler's List. And now he's like one of our most like gifted funny dramatic actors do you know what i mean we're like yeah. it's he can be in grand budapest hotel or uh, in bruges or hail caesar and he's just astoundingly good oh my god why Com- doesn't he have a second oscar for hail caesar i'm saying i'm saying actually that should be alden ehrenreich's oscar it should be alden ehrenreich's oscar but like he should have been effusively thanked in that oscar because in that uh acceptance speech because that obviously the uh what did that were would the were so simple scene is one of the great what is a symbol uh yeah can't say anything else uh, beyond what you said uh, it's it's a, a performance that is funny both verbally and physically in a way that like it excels at both of those things it's okay it's fantastic i just have to come further complain for a second because i pulled it up because i really had to just confirm his only oscar nominations are schindler's list and the english page i know he hasn't been nominated since 1996 it's crazy it's crazy psycho it's He's crazy. one of the best living actors 25 years you're saying in 25 years this man has not given a performance that's been worthy of an oscar nomination you're a liar you're a liar if you say that some of it is like it's very easy to underrate this guy because he does a lot of things that either we don't care about like Coriolanus or like <laughs> tiny right. roles and things that are just like okay well and he but also like, spent the better part of a decade playing like Voldemort but it's not like he wasn't also making movies during that time he made Grand Budapest during that time he made In Bruges during that time yeah yeah well I guess he made Grand Budapest after he was liberated from Voldemort and gave his finest performance when was the last Harry Potter movie Hold, please. Grand Budapest is 2014. Final Harry Potter was 2011. Oh, wow. I guess I, uh, well, whatever. Anyway, yes. All right. So, uh, let's, let's lay down our number one. I do feel like we have the same one. Uh, I mean, uh, I just feel like who else could it be but Gene Hackman? Yeah. It's Gene Hackman in Royal Town. He, he plays such scumbum in that movie in the most lovable way there are no rascal there are like two handfuls of perfect line readings in that movie the part like and it's not even like the big ones it's him talking to the twin boys and being like i'm very so i'm so sorry about your mother she was a terribly attractive woman like it's just (laughs) let's go shag ass (laughs) yeah (laughs) 
great. But also, also he he is incredibly lovable, and it's like we in the audience are on a completely different uh, side uh, level of experience with this guy than his family is. But right. like, right? It's not just the text that makes us understand, or like the uh, you know, we we believe these other characters to hate him. There is something in his performance that it's like you. You are a bad person, you know? Yes. Like, oh, yeah. Uh, and, like, it's a remarkably, like, uh, both vain and unvain performance. Uh, the whole... this uh, The best scene in the movie, to me, is the reason why I almost put Angelica Houston in there, is when he does... When he, like, bombards her on the street and is like, I'm dying! And then she has the breakdown he, to get her to stop crying. He's like, I'm not dying. It's... The best yeah, he like flip flops on her so like twice. Funny. It's yeah, and it's so like uh, the emotion that Angelica Houston brings to it too it is like so like sudden and real that like is very true to the tone of the movie. Uh, he's just so special, and we missed a real. They missed a real fucking opportunity to nominate him for that because that's not the role he retired on, but he basically retired shortly after then, right. and like. I don't know. He's st- what a was note one to of go those out things on. going around online that like someone checked in on Gene Hackman and they posted a picture of him. Of course, I'm crying immediately when I see it. Yeah. Uh, like he's like doing well, enjoying retirement, but he looks so old. He looks very and old. He does. It's just like this. I think the Royal Tenenbaums is going to be the performance that we remember him for. Even the Royal Tenenbaums for other movies. Yeah. The Royal Tenenbaums is the most emotionally affecting of Wes Anderson's movies to me. It is my favorite, and it doesn't work on that level unless Gene Hackman is doing the work that he is doing. That that movie really coalesces around, can these kids sort of, you know, reconnect with this with this man, forgive this man? Can they all sort of, like, patch up these wounds enough to sort of have these moments with each other. And it's really... But also, can he earn that forgiveness, too? Right, right, exactly. But I think, like, that movie doesn't end up at the place that it does without him giving both sides of that character perfectly. And and also the way he says, that's the last time you put a knife in me, when uh, after Pagoda stabs him, is also very funny. <laughs> it's... <laughs> It's both the of way those that things. that movie ends, too, like before uh, Royal actually died, like you do actually feel like a sense of mourning when he dies. But like, yeah, I, I always think of like how he earns the tears from Ben Stiller when Ben Stiller's like, "I'm having a really hard time, Dad." Uh, like that's the moment where you do actually feel the reconciliation too, because like uh, that, you know, his children can be that vulnerable with him. Yeah, yeah. All right, I'm glad we are in agreement on that. Very good. Gene Hackman, we love you. Anything else we want to say about The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou before we uh, move on? I mean, in terms of my Wes Anderson rankings, it's probably somewhere in, like, middle or high middle. But I think people should give it another shot. Give it another shot. There are definite, like... It's 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 imperfections will make themselves known to you. And yet... It's the worst reviewed Wes Anderson movie, but I don't think it's, like the worst perceived Wes Anderson movie if that makes no, sense. No, I think I think I again I feel like Darjeeling is definitely seen as generally accepted as worse than than Life Aquatic, but I think it's very interesting in ways that we've talked about why Life Aquatic felt like 
um, you know, a betrayal or whatever for for critics who were, I feel like, high on uh, Royal Tenenbaums, and rightly so. But yeah, I think I'm glad we did this. I'm glad we sort of got our uh, our Wes Anderson episode in. I go and see the French Dispatch and see for yourself. You might like it more than you think you're going to. I would also say look at this year's art direction Oscar nominees, and I challenge you to remember any of those sets as much as you remember the boat from this movie. Yeah. Who were the nominees? Let, let, let uh, the winner is The Aviator. Houses and, uh, like, uh, you know, airliner, you know, housing <laughs> facilities, whatever you call right. those things. Uh, uh, Hangers? Hangers! Thank you! Um, <laughs> Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. Right. You know, right, right. Angular Houses. Right. Uh, a Very Long Engagement. French Countryside. Sure. Uh, Phantom of the Opera. Sure. Uh, and Finding <laughs> Neverland. British Houses. British Jesus Houses. Christ. That, that British movie houses is a scourge. British Everywhere you turn that year at the Oscars, it's getting a nomination it shouldn't have gotten. It makes you look at the full Oscar lineup of this year, and it makes complete sense that the craft of uh, Life Aquatic <laughs> wouldn't be appreciated because there's like no room for whimsy. Everything is so serious. The closest to whimsy that you get is Lemony Snickets, which is like sure, sure, yeah, yeah. Also, but like that's the other thing is like the fact that it took until Grand Budapest Hotel for a Wes Anderson movie to get an art direction nomination is absolutely insane. And it really shows, like, I don't know what it, it shows something. I don't know how, I mean, no, like, I don't know how to end that I reading the uh, EW Fall movie preview for this and being like, oh, this is going to be a set design nomination because, like, they were touting the sets even then. And they were talking about how, like, this was shot on Fellini's sound stages. And I was like, oh, okay, well, this is going to be a thing. And I think the taste level was just not there for it. That's not what people wanted. Well, it's stupid, and they're stupid, and they should feel bad about themselves. Very dumb. Stupid. All right. Do you want to move on to the IMDb game? Yeah. Why don't you tell our lovely listeners what the IMDb game is? Why don't I? Well, every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we mentioned that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue, and that... After, <laughs> after two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. IMDb. That's the IMDb game. Yeah. Joe, my lovely friend, would you like to uh, give her guess first? I'll give first. Oh, whomst do you have for me? I'm a little surprised we haven't done this person. I did a little uh, checking just to make sure, but I don't think we have. Uh, one of the stars of the French Dispatch, I think when I talked about it in our New York Film Festival episode, I did mention that this was my least favorite sections of the French Dispatch. And yet, you know, attention must be paid. He is an Oscar winner. His name is Benicio del Toro. And I'm going to ask you to provide his known for. He is in Grand Budapest, right? Because Grand Budapest is one of those movies that shows up a ton. Why do I think he's in Grand Budapest? I don't think he is. Not according to IMDb. Okay. Well, that's fine. Um, I'm going to say his Oscar win, Traffic. Correct. Uh, the Usual Suspects. Correct. The first movie that anybody really saw him in. 
the because he won uh, Indie Spirit for that. I think that's right. The question is, do I think his other Oscar nomination for 21 Grams is going to be there? I'm going to say yes. 21 Grams. Boo, no. Ah, well, okay. Um, Sicario? Sicario. Very good. You have okay. three of the four with only one strike. I don't think that the Sicario sequel is there. Thank God. Scrub that thing from the <laughs> face of the earth. Yes. Huh. Oh, another large ensemble. Um, Inherent Vice. No, but good guess, but no. All right. Ugh. So now you get the hint. Your clue is 2014. The same year as Inherent Vice. And the same year as uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, which we have confirmed he is not in. <laughs> He's not in. Why did I think he was in that? I thought he was one of those people in the whole, like, Adrian everybody's Brody, in that. Willem Dafoe, Mishigas. Um, yeah, everybody's in that. That's why. Oh, no. No, 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 no. 2014. Same year as Inherent Vice. Same year as Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, again, another large ensemble. Uh, the MCU, he is in Guardians of the Galaxy. Indeed, he is in Guardians of the Galaxy. On the heels of his uh, post-credits appearance in Thor The Dark World, he shows up in Guardians of the Galaxy. I will say, much of a Marvel fan as I am, I never have quite gotten on board with his performance uh, as the collector. It's just... It really is a lot of faffing around. And honestly, good for him. Like, get your paycheck and all, but I've never quite... Yeah, get paid. Same for Glenn Close in that movie. Get paid. It's fine. Uh, Yeah, same for Jaiman Hansu. Like a lot of lot of paychecks going around. Um, she deserves better than that. Um, I don't think anyone has screwed over an actor more than Glenn Close has been screwed over by the MCU. Um, the thing about him in Guardians of the Galaxy is that like he's supposed to show up to be the fun and weird kooky character, and it's like that doesn't work because everybody in this movie is a fun kooky character. Everybody is like yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Um, cool cool indeed. All right, so for you, I have someone that we also shockingly haven't done. I almost didn't pull up this person, and I feel like maybe there's been other times that I would have pulled this person, but it was like, oh no, we've definitely done this before. Uh, We haven't, per our records. Another Wes Anderson performer, one who you have praised very highly, and I have snubbed. Uh, It's Gwyneth. Gwyneth My... Dear darling Gwyneth, I love her so much. All right. Well, obviously Shakespeare in Love. Correct. All right. Now, where do we go from here? I'm. Tr- hmm. I think okay. the other thing about choosing this performer is, especially for you, once it gets to the years, I think you're going to get it. I well, I think that's definitely true because we can chart her career very easily. So there's a couple Being different a angles to this. One is that, like, is any one of the Avengers slash Iron Man movies going to show up in there? Because it's quite a lot of them, and she's pretty prominent in those Iron Man movies. But then the question is, which one? And then it's also, which of the 90s Gwyneth Paltrow movies is she remembered enough for to show up? All right, I'm going to guess seven. No. Damn it. 
I'm going to guess the first Iron Man. No. <laughs> oh, God. Terrible. Okay. Your years are 1996, 1998, and 2013. I was going to guess this. Is 96 Emma? Emma. Damn it, I should have guessed it. All right. What are the other two? 98 and 2013. Another 98. Is it a perfect murder? No. Ninety-eight, same year as Shakespeare in Love, the year before, talented Mr. Ripley. <sighs> Sliding Doors. Sliding Doors. Sliding Doors is a movie that, like, conceivably has already been turned into a musical we've forgotten about, right? Like, why isn't Sliding Doors a musical? Well, it's If Then. <laughs> Never mind. I, it's If Then, right. It's If <laughs> Then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. What's the other year? 2013. Is this Iron Man 3? It's Iron Man 3. I and was, you know why it's probably Iron Man 3? It's the most Gwyneth of the three of them. Sure, but it's how she's credited. Because it's not going to be Iron Man 2. People are happy to forget about Iron Man 2. Yes. And in Iron Man, she gets the and credit, right? Uh, and this one, she's second build. She's second build. Yeah, that Positive, that's why. Yeah, I was flipping a coin mentally between Iron Man and Iron Man 3, and I was flipping a coin mentally between Seven and Emma, and I guessed wrong in both of those occasions. So great. Let me yeah. pull this up, because I, I, I'm I, positive she's second build in this movie. She's not. She's third build after Guy Pierce. After Guy Pierce, yeah. Yeah. Does Guy Rebecca Pierce. Hall get the and, or does she just, like, she's just fourth build? Uh, let me see doesn't see imdb on top of being uh an interminable hellscape these days um should really tell us when a with or an and credit is there because of, per IMDb, on my laundry list build. of complaints about imdb that is definitely on there but also it's just like stop hurting me with your layout please yeah. stop hurting me it's on a mission to make my computer crash at all times. Yeah, it's the worst. No, the and credit is Ben Kingsley. Rebecca Hall is not even Oh, built. sure, of Re- course. Remember when Rebecca sense. Hall was supposed to be Jessica Chastain? I do. I do remember that. Have you yeah. seen Shang-Chi yet? I haven't. Ben Kingsley... It's like the only Marvel movie that I haven't been given a screening or a screener for. It's, I loved it. I really loved it. And Ben Kingsley showing up there was so, like, kind of delightful to me. Like, I, because I, I really did love the way his character uh, played out in Iron Man 3. And it's kind of fantastic in Shang-Chi. Highly recommended. Awesome. Joe, I think that's our episode. Listeners, Indeed. if you want more of this head Oscar buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at this headoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, tell our listeners where they can find more of you in the depths of the ocean if they try to go there by submersible. <laughs> you can find me swimming with the crayon pony fish on Twitter at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. I'm also on Letterboxd, uh, Joe Reed spelled that same way. 
And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Crispy File. That's F-E-I-L. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get those podcasts. Five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So please write us a nice review and then translate it into Portuguese. Mm. Uh, that's all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Hurrah!